Welcome to the Flight Safety Detectives. Hosts John Golia and Greg Fife, two of the world's most respected aviation safety experts, talk all things related to aviation and aerospace. This podcast and the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel are brought to you by the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, PAMA, and Avemco Insurance, a world-class provider of aviation insurance and your one-stop for all general aviation insurance needs. Get a customized quote at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Tell them you're a listener of the show and receive a 5% discount. Now it's time to buckle up because it's wheels up for the latest episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Well, hello, gentlemen. It is another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Good to see you guys. Uh, I was doing a little traveling, and I know you guys are always traveling, so I'm always happy when uh, the three of us can get together on uh, on the show. I think we have an interesting accident today involving a uh, Piper PA46-500TP, which for those of you who are not familiar with all those fancy numbers and letters, that is a Piper Meridian single engine turboprop. Um, it is a, along the lines of a TBM 700, uh, smaller than a, uh, a Pilatus PC-12, but in the same uh, category as an Epic 1000. Um, these are not toy airplanes. That is, these are very complex machines. Um, they require a lot of skillability and knowledge to operate them safely, um, typically as a pilot. You wanna to go to school on these types of airplanes. You wanna have an intimate knowledge with, uh, with not only the airplane itself and how to fly it, but the systems especially. And things can go wrong. And when they do go wrong, they go wrong at a faster speed. It is not your father's 172. It is not a 90, <laughs> 98 knot airplane. So when things start to go bad, especially in IMC conditions, they go bad very quickly. This is a case of a single pilot flying this airplane. Um, we're going to get into some of his background because that's where this story kind of starts to begin. But this pilot was uh, trying to shoot an ILS approach into San Antonio International Airport back in 2008. Um, he was trying to shoot a, quote, coupled approach. He was in IMC conditions, which means that he was flying in the clouds and that he was trying to uh, utilize all of the functionality of the autopilot to fly a perfect ILS approach to the runway. Unfortunately, uh, he attempted that not once, not twice, but actually three times he tried to shoot these quote coupled approaches, failed each time, and on the last time told the air traffic controller that he was trying to quote, get control of the airplane end quote. We don't know what that means. The NTSB doesn't talk about it other than just recite what was in the uh, ATC transcript. Um, and the, uh, the airplane was observed by a retired naval aviator. It was flying at a low altitude, about 300 feet below the, the clouds. Uh, he watched the airplane as it passed by. It was flying very slow. The airplane eventually rolled into a 60 degree bank turn struck the ground and came to rest in the side of a barn 
pilot was killed, barn was burned down, and so was the uh, the airplane. Um, we will have pictures and a link to uh, to this report. And I know that some of our uh, listeners, viewers, have uh, expressed that we should also add the NTSB identifier so that they can look these these accidents up. So we will do that as well. But here is the case of a pilot, 65 years old. He holds a private pilot certificate with an instrument rating. It took him forever to get his private pilot certificate. Todd, I know that you started looking at uh, this pilot's background. And when you start dissecting the numbers that the NTSB put in their report, um, you got to wonder what was going on that it took him well over 200 hours just to solo. And the, when you look at his, his record as a pilot, the thing that first jumped out at me was he had 66 hours of instruction before his solo. And again, I'm not the world's greatest pilot, but I thought to myself, I took way less than that amount to get to solo. And I could not recall in my experience coming across someone who, for whatever reason, had that level of difficulty trying to solo in an aircraft. Now, to his credit, he eventually did get an instrument rating, but it took him what? couple of hundred hours before mm -hmm. he attempted to pass uh, his, uh, his qualifying solo for, for private pilot. And yeah. he failed the first time. Now, again, to his credit, he eventually did do a lot more. But the other thing that struck me is a large percentage of his total time, a little over, I think, about 1,050 hours. Roughly half of that was instructional. And it doesn't say how many types of airplanes this was in, but that's a lot of instructional time given the kind of pilot that he is. This was a new airplane. It, he bought it or received it about four or five months before the event, had 50 hours on it when he had uh, 45 hours on it when he got it, about 111 at the time of the crash. And in that time, he did have some time flying this airplane on instruments, in instrument conditions. He did have some time wait, flying wait, this airplane wait, wait, solo. Wait. Let's not mislead everyone. Uh oh. He did have instrument time in this airplane. He only had 58 hours in this airplane, but the majority, 51 hours of that 58 hours, was with who? An instructor. An in, in instructor. And the instrument time, it was not clearly written in the NTSB report. He had seven hours of instrument time not solo in this aircraft, didn't state if it was with an instructor or with someone else. So Correct. Under the and best the way the board of, wrote the report and the way the board wrote the report, they said he had not flown this airplane, but seven hours solo, none of which had been in IMC conditions. And he only had one flight where he flew this airplane solo in IMC conditions. That was the accident flight. That was the accident flight and it didn't fare well. And so... I know that uh, you were scouring the uh, the internet for some of the social media comments, and you found a comment regarding a person that he had met, the pilot had met back in November, about a month and a half or so before the accident, who basically started the conversation and ended the conversation complaining about the airplane he just bought. And this was in November before this crash in the following January. This was another pilot. This was in Waco, the turns out to be the city that he took off from in the accident flight as well. But he overheard the conversation of the accident pilot complaining about his airplane, and they had a conversation afterwards. And if you look at the conversation, you think, my God, this is a squirrely airplane with all kinds of things wrong with it. If you look elsewhere in the report, 
you realize that this was a relatively virtually brand new airplane. And it begged the question, given his history of, let's just say, taking a lot of training to get to whatever level of competence he had, and given this was a brand new airplane, given it was quite a bit more complex than your typical training aircraft, was it the pilot or was it the technology? And NTSB didn't specifically say, but I'm leaning toward the pilot. And when you look at the way the NTSB wrote the report, um, they do identify, um, of course, the, uh, the gentleman that you found that uh, was talking about his conversation with the accident pilot, where he was complaining about the, um, the glass cockpit displays having gone out, pitch problems, a variety of you know, things going on with his airplane. The NTSB did describe them in the, uh, in the report. John, I'm going to read you what they wrote. And I just want to get your, your feeling on, on what they wrote. It said, investigators reviewed the airplane's maintenance work orders. The airplane had repeatedly experienced pitch trim problems, including on instance, including, it should be an instance, uh, of a runaway trim. The last work order dated December 4, 2007, which is about 22 days before the accident, revealed two discrepancies. First, the pilot reported that while taxiing, the airplane's co-pilot primary flight display, PFD, had gone blank. Second, the pilot had observed the airplane's pitched trim arbitrarily move without input. Both discrepancies were signed off on December 4th of 2007 as, quote, no action taken, end quote. The work order noted that the PFD, quote, started working and continued to do so, end quote, and that, a quote, upon relocating the aircraft from Waco to San Antonio, the trim system operated properly, and on a, and on a subsequent trip, it worked satisfactory, end quote. Now, given those write-ups, given those issues, how... Could you just write that off to no action taken? Well, the first thing you would say is, you know, they didn't say no fault found. They didn't say that they checked it and everything appears to be working normally. So that would call into question whether they received, uh, I'm not going to fix this at, the, at this time. You know, it's a 91 operation. The pilot has control of uh, what happens to his airplane. He's responsible for the airworthiness, not the maintenance department. So he very well could have uh, instructed them to leave everything alone, that he'll go somewhere else and get it fixed or fix it at a later date or wait for it to screw up again. I mean, there's a lot of different uh, justifications that he could, could uh, say to them. But the bottom line is just by the way they signed it off, they say that they didn't touch the airplane because the owner didn't want them to. Well, you know, the question is, why did the NTSB write a diatribe as to who said what and how that airplane got back into service? Because they don't talk about it being returned to service. They have a, you know, <laughs> no action taken. Well, they had to have done something to try and identify or at least identify these issues or try to corroborate these issues that the pilot was talking about. So, I mean, Okay, there was a work order. I mean, why isn't there a discussion? It just, I mean, this is, these are critical. Now the guy's in IMC conditions. He's been complaining about all these problems. 
and he can't shoot a quote coupled approach. Uh, you know, one and one is three. It doesn't work that way. I mean, you got to ferret out all of these issues to see if there's any kind of context of this previous these previous issues. Uh, so now this guy, you know, for 22 days has got a sick airplane and he's doing this kind of flying with a sick airplane. It makes no sense. And it, it begs the question. I mean, well, did, did that have a contribution to this accident? Because the board doesn't talk about any of that as being a, a cause or a contributing factor, nor do they really put it to bed. You know, this is we've complained before about uh, NTSB reports. Not, not being as complete as they should be. And this one here is the poster child for incomplete reports. You know, just the fact that they had the work order. Who did the work? They should have talked to the people at the, and got a statement over who did the work. What yeah. did they do? You know what? That As a maintenance person, a maintenance provider, if you go out to an airplane and look at a problem, the fact that you looked at it, you, you did something that's looking at it, needs to be recorded in the book. It's not there. Now, a lot of mechanics don't do that. In fairness to a lot of people don't do that. But that's a violation. That's a technical violation. You went out and did some troubleshooting and you did not record it. Right? And you made it. What determination did you make? You know, if, if we assume, and I hate to do assumings because you know what that means, but if we, if we assume for a minute that he did tell that FBO, no, I don't want to fix the airplane at this location at this point in time. They should have taken note of that a little stronger than what they did. At least on the work order, they should have put down what they did and that the owner refused repair. Yeah, exactly. They should have, you know, attributed it to that. Um, I've seen work orders, and so have you, John, where um, the mechanics who have troubleshot something saw that it was a possible safety of flight issue and, and made the note that they wouldn't return the airplane to service. Yes. Now, one other thing that struck me with that part of the report is, given this was a fairly new airplane, given that this pilot had a history of, let's just say, having um, challenges with getting his ratings, it begs the question, was there a pilot issue here? Was this pilot up to speed on this kind of aircraft? Simple question. He's been flying for about a thousand hours. This is a fairly new airplane for him. Was this a brand new avionics kind of situation for him? Had he ever worked with this kind of avionics before? Also, the approach. This is an ILS report approach that did not require an autopilot, yet he was insisting on using his a coupled approach with an autopilot to land the aircraft. Does that uh, suggest that perhaps he was not confident in the skills or did not have the skills to land at an IMC? without yet letting the automation take over. When you well, got only seven point. hours, Todd, in the airplane, none in IMC, and if this is the first time you're really learning how to use this stuff on your own, single pilot IFR flying is the hardest flying out there. And, and so now you got a guy who's not real proficient, most likely, not real competent, most likely, and then, oh, let's throw in one more factoid all the drugs they found in this guy's system to the point where there were a variety of different types of drugs that according to the FAA, had they been disclosed when the pilot went for his medical, which he had just gone for a medical 
six, seven months prior to the accident, failed to disclose these drugs on his medical. But had he done that, the FAA wrote a letter, put it in the docket that said that these would have been disqualifying drugs. So now you got a guy who's taking some drugs, some over-the-counter, some prescription, that one was for insomnia. So if you're taking drugs for insomnia, and now you're going to go fly IFR, um, you're already tired. You've now created more tired because of the drugs. And then he was taking some other allergy-type medicine, antihistamines, that makes you even more tired. And <laughs> it just... I think that this is not... This isn't a question, in my opinion, of this person didn't understand the effects of drugs. Uh, looking at what little, little I could find about this gentleman, he apparently had a successful business. And as an undergraduate from an excellent university, he got a, an undergraduate degree in pharmacology. Hmm. I'll just leave that hanging. Well, so no, now you got a pilot. I'm wonder, sorry, John. I wonder if the NTSB investigators, when they got the drug uh, letter from the FAA, just threw up their hands and, and just wrote it off because yeah. it's clear that they didn't do what the work that would normally be done in an accident report. Well, you know? let's skip ahead and just see what the NTSB determined was the probable cause to try and answer that question, John. The NTSB, after writing basically a page and a half of nothing in a report, they didn't add any of the radar data into the docket. I sure would have liked to see the radar data to see if these, you know, pitch issues that he had complained about show up in the data. Was he trying to shoot this? Why was he trying to shoot a coupled approach and he couldn't couple up? Was it because of his ineptness or was it because of some sort of issue with the avionics that he had complained out, uh, complained of previously? The radar data could have given at least a clue because if you start to see pitch oscillation somewhere, especially as you're trying to couple up, that might provide some sort of information. The other thing is they never talk about his IFR flight plan. What was his alternate airport? I mean, you, you try to couple and shoot the approach the first time, he doesn't do it. He goes out, he's apparently able to hold a heading in an altitude. Um, ATC apparently gets him back to a second time he can't couple up the second time. And then he decides he's going to come back a third time. How many more times are you going to do this before somebody says, you got to go somewhere else? Or why don't you just hand fly the approach? Or, you know, I mean, I, I just, I don't understand why none of this is discussed. And of course, I know what the investigator, well, I don't, we don't know. Well, yeah, you can look at the flight plan and see if he actually filed an alternate. Was he actually legal to file or to fly this IFR flight because you have to have a legal alternate? Why didn't he go there? And talking to the air traffic controllers, there's nothing in, in the record that talks about, well, why didn't you suggest to him that he go do something else? Since apparently he was being he was unsuccessful the first two times. And I know the air traffic controllers will say, well, we can't tell a pilot what to do. Yeah, but we've all been there where it's like you can hint and hope. You can throw out suggestions. You can ask, you know, what's the problem? Um, you know, all, you know, offer alternatives, do something. But it was obvious that this guy wasn't going to be successful in accomplishing what he was trying to do. And that was shoot a coupled approach. But 
you know, after all of this and what we're talking about, there's so many open items in this in this investigation. And then the NTSB comes up with one of their, you know, nice, short, succinct. The National Transportation Safety Board determines the probable causes of this accident to be, quote, the pilot's failure to execute an instrument approach, period. Contributing to the accident was the pilot's impairment due to recent use of over-the-counter medication. Really? That's the best you could do? He failed to shoot or execute an instrument approach? Really? We kind of got that part of it, but you got to tell me why. And if you're going to say, well, it was due to the drugs, first off, they weren't all over-the-counter medication. Second off, what did that do? You don't tell me how it impaired his ability, given the fact that he was able to hold headings and altitude. How impaired was he? And apparently he came breaking out of the clouds at a low altitude because somebody actually saw the airplane. He slowed the airplane down. Did he get out below, below the clouds, get a visual cue on the airport and try to maneuver, you know, trying to sneak in since he was down below the clouds and he actually could see something? Come on. I mean, yeah, th this is circumstantial and, oh, we don't have any facts to back it up. Yeah, you do, because you can put together a very good picture of what was going on better than the pilot failed to execute an instrument approach. He did. No, he tried. <laughs> he just was unsuccessful three times. It wasn't that he failed to execute. He just was unsuccessful the three times he tried. I wonder if this guy was was flying the autopilot all the time to make up efficiencies. Oh, and, John, you better believe it. It's obvious he didn't know how to fly. Right. So he, he's using it for all the easy stuff. Climb, you know, hold, altitude hold, set the heading. It's flying the airplane. But now he's coming down and he's, he's entering a realm that he hasn't had a lot of experience in. And you if know. you look, and that's why the, the radar data would have been important because you can tell from the radar data how long he had been on the autopilot. And if he was trying to use the autopilot to make all the turns, to do the intercepts to, to the uh, final approach and things like that, none of that's discussed. What was the, I mean, yeah, the airplane did partially burn, but they don't talk about, you know, anything with regard to trying to identify what may have been going on. And, and you brought it up. You got to go to the maintenance facility and try and figure out because, you know, Todd brought it up. Was this, was this a problem with him not understanding the avionics? And did they give him a little counseling and guidance and coaching? And that's why they have, you know, <laughs> the sign off of, you know, we didn't do anything. Why? Because they educated the guy on, it's not a problem with your avionics. It's a problem with you. So yeah. an interview or two would have been, been uh, very enlightening for that side of it. Very Guess what they found in the cockpit? They didn't even document or record the documenting of, of the cockpit. Yeah. I mean, was it set up properly to actually execute the approach? It's obvious that he had to go missed. They don't talk about whether he actually got close to flying the approach. Success. I mean, as far as, you know, within the prescribed limits, they don't talk about what happened at the time of missed approach or how he conducted his missed approach 
and of course being vectored back around. No, that's all important stuff. Was he all over the sky where the controllers having to work him, you know, forever just to get him close to the final approach fix for the second and third approach? I mean, those are critical things. And then of course, radar data is gonna be able to support all of those scenarios. Why did he get so low? Why did he pop out? Was he trying to maneuver? Did he get lost? Did he have situational awareness issues? I mean, it's obvious he lost the airplane because he got too slow. And it sounds like it stalled and came screaming out of the sky. I mean, these are the critical things. And we've talked about these, the, these types of accidents, gentlemen, in our previous shows. There's got to be an educational value to this. This isn't, I mean, this is worthless. This is throwing words on a paper to document that, okay, you added a number to the database. But to search this accident, what safety benefit to the public out there, of course, the general aviation public out there, what do you get from this? Don't fly with drugs? Great. <laughs> now, the other thing, the report itself was the usual thing that people see. And we at this show constantly are talking about, hey, let's go to the public docket, see if there's something else there. There's usually something else there. So my message to the audience, if you're interested in any particular event, either one we cover or one that's of interest to you, take the time and effort to find that public docket in the NTSB database. Because sometimes there's things that make you scratch your head and think twice about what they said in the report. Things that might look contradictory or at least leads you to questions that maybe should be answered. Well, it's just frustrating. Um, there are some, I think, some safety issues that could have been further developed. Um, again, I, I'd go back to who, who sold you this airplane? Uh, you know, there's a number of facilities at San Antonio. It's apparent he took this airplane back to someone. Was it the uh, organization that actually sold him the airplane? Uh, and again, Todd, I think if I remember right, um, you know, you said that in that discussion that uh, with that person back in November, he was having with uh, with the um, accident pilot. The accident pilot said, I'm giving this airplane back. I don't want it anymore. I mean, that's key stuff. Where it's a new airplane. It's I a mean, new airplane. If this is a lemon, to throw airplane. in the towel with this airplane because you got all these problems. Then why are you still flying a sick airplane? And it begs the question I asked earlier: Is it the technology or is it the pilot? Yeah, yeah. Because this airplane it could was, have been so far technically advanced of his skill level that he blamed the airplane instead of himself. Well, isn't that human nature? Of course. Of course. It's hard to point the finger right here and say it was me. So, well, I think that, you know, um, this was, uh, again, lessons learned that were lost. Um, I think that even these accidents, and while it's obvious, well, he was flying with drugs and, you know, he didn't disclose them. Okay, we get back to the advisory circular that we've talked about on previous shows. Uh, about aeronautical decision-making and the anti-authority. It's obvious this was anti-authority. He didn't disclose all those things he was required to disclose uh, to get his medical. Now you have overconfidence, overconfidence in your own personal skills and abilities, you know, definitely overconfidence in having the airplane try to do things for you, except the airplane won't do what you want it to do if you don't know how to do it and tell the airplane how to do it. So, um, you know, everything goes back to that advisory circular and you can see these little traits 
in just about every accident. And that's why it is so important that you do a thorough and methodical investigation so that we can use these as learned lessons because it comes back to what John preaches about at the end of every show, which we will talk about. But I know, gentlemen, you know, these are the frustrating accidents that we all look at, shake our head and go, why did they even bother? Because there's no useful information except for guys like us to dissect it and ask questions. Why didn't they do this, 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 this? Why didn't they look at this? So, well, with that, Todd, I will leave you with the second to the last word about this accident. Well, as a uh, um, pilot who's trying to get his instrument rating, I hope that I take a reasonable amount of time to get to the next level. And if I find myself taking too much time, I got to ask myself a question. Is it this material is too hard or I'm not doing something right about studying this? When I'm flying my airplane, whatever that airplane is, if I have an opportunity to simulate what I'm doing in a real airplane before I fly the airplane, which I do all the time with my uh, X-Plane 11, I'll do that because, you know, as much as I think I know about how the autopilot system works or how the other avionics work, I'm not going to know enough because there's nuance, there's subtleties that I'm going to pick up on before I'm in the airplane. And John, I will leave you the master of philosophy. <laughs> uh, our last words. Right. As always, you need to pre-plan your flight. Right. Aeronautical decision making. You know, before you leave the hotel or home, look at what you're going to do. Make sure it's prudent. Look at the weather. Right? If you have a sick airplane, don't be jumping in it and trying to get it home. Get somebody to look at it. When you get out to the airport, do it all again. Check the weather. When you get out to your airplane, do a good pre-flight. More and more and more accidents that I'm looking at involve a pre-flight. You know what? And there's a question that's been coming up in my mind. Is where has the FAA been on requiring the manufacturers to start with a basic pre-flight for their airplanes. There are so many manuals that I've been looking at that have zero information about a pre-flight in them. You know, can't you help the pilots by requiring the manufacturers to put a basic checklist together for things to look at? I mean, we have to have instructions for continued airworthiness that are given in the manual with the time the airplane is manufactured. Instruction for continued airworthiness be determined to be a pre-flight. Yeah, well, you got to give, uh, you know, there are a lot of manuals and a lot of the manufacturers do definitely put pre-flight guidance into their manuals. A lot of them are the later generation airplanes. Um, you know, some of the uh, older aircraft where just a uh, pilot operating handbook, not necessarily an, an AFM or airplane flight manual or something like that. Um, when it was published, they didn't have a lot of that guidance. People have developed it over the years. You can basically search it on, on the internet and find a decent checklist for darn near any airplane that is out there. Um, but in this type of airplane, John, I agree because one of the things, yeah, it is one thing to 
you know, go in there. I mean, I, I flew this weekend and yeah, you, you turn on the battery switch and the Garmin 1000 fires up and you're looking at certain uh, aspects of the, the engine parameters and, and the fuel and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but that's the extent really of the avionics pre-flight. And in this case, where um, a pilot like this is going to be highly dependent on the avionics, there may be a reason to have a better avionics pre-flight. It's one thing to go out and look at the airplane. Okay, great. But once I get in the airplane, I fire everything up. I run through system tests. Some of the manufacturers do have that pre-flight and you go through a bit check and you make sure that everything is functioning. You hook the autopilot or at least turn the autopilot on to make sure that the automation is talking to the autopilot and vice versa. It's obvious this guy had no clue. He's trying to do something with an airplane and with the automation that isn't going to work. And apparently it hasn't been working prior to him doing this. So it is. these are the learning lessons. These are the things that are so important. And these are the things that the NTSB really should be focusing on to enhance aviation safety. Wouldn't it have been nice to have that information in this report? Yes. Wouldn't it have been nice? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And after you get out to the airplane and do your pre-flight and you, you, you get off the ground, put that head of yours on a swivel. Again, the number of mid is, I mean, I haven't seen any this week. But uh, we had one just a week ago. These mid-airs are just happening all too frequently and all too frequently involving students. And sometimes even with a CFI in the, in the airplane with them. So you've got to have that head on a swivel. You've got to know what's around you. Right? It's your life. You know, protect it. And with that, fly safe. Yeah, well, I forgot my fly safe. <laughs> To listen or watch more episodes of this show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com, the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel, or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. To contact John and Greg about the show, send them an email at FlightSafetyDetectives at gmail.com. And remember, for aviation insurance needs, contact Avemco Insurance at Avemco.com or give them a call at 888 888- 879-0389. Mention Flight Safety Detectives and receive a 5% discount. Thanks for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives and remember to always fly safe.